Hi and welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. My name is Alice and today I want to talk with you about rejection. I'm really surprised that I haven't covered this topic on the podcast yet because it's definitely been a feature of my uh, career such as it is as a poet and I know that a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are also poets and it's something that if you are sending work out on any kind of regular basis and um, whether you are a beginning poet or a very established poet rejection is something that we all deal with and I think we we talk about it a little um, but you know, as I try to do in pretty much every episode here, I want to demystify what it is to be rejected, what that feels like, and hopefully, if you're someone who writes poetry but is yet to really get into sending it out into the world because you're afraid of being rejected, maybe take a little bit of the fear out of it for you. Because I know from talking to friends and, you know, if I introduce myself and um, end up telling someone that I do write poems, some people will say that they also write poems or they also write things for themselves, but occasionally they'll share that these things remain, you know, in a folder on the desktop because of how much it would hurt for them to come back as as rejected um and this it's hits particularly close to home for me because my uh my paternal grandmother was a bit of an emily dickinson type a bit of a secret writer of things and squirreler away of them in drawers and i know that my dad has boxes at his house full of her stuff which i can't yet quite bring myself to look at but my dad's cousin sent me a couple of grandma's poems um about mid last year and i read them and i was just like oh my god these are really really good and her brother my great uncle jack is uh widely known or was widely known his his uh star is is very much faded as we get to you know um the early 21st century he uh yeah he was john blight who had many volumes of of work published but when i read my grandmother's poems his sister's poems i just thought god damn these are these are so much better (laughs) these are so much better than your brother's poems and why didn't you send them out and my dad often tells me that it was this fear of rejection. She, she was mortified at the idea that these poems would have to come back with their tails between their legs. It was it was not something that she could reconcile, I suppose, enough. It, it just seemed too painful to her. And so her work went almost entirely unpublished. The only work of hers that exists in the published world under the name Helen Allen is a work that was published in a little family magazine that the the Allen family had put together themselves you know so there was there was no chance of rejection in that scenario so that's that's where she published that's the only place where she published so yeah what a shame I think that's I think that's a real shame 
I also think about friends of mine who have shared really similar stories. And of course, when you first start writing poetry, it would be really strange to get published first off. The first things that you publish getting picked up would be really, really unusual. The sad part is that this is also the point in your writing career when you are the most fragile. You have the most hope, you probably have the least experience as to what is getting published because you probably haven't um, read a huge amount of stuff or, or if you have, that's probably paralyzing in its own way. And yeah, you haven't built up that armor yet. You don't have a, a thick skin. So you're sending out work that is, you know, kind of shaky on its legs and um, it's going to probably bounce back to you. Weirdly, I had kind of the opposite experience and ended up with just as big of a problem. <laughs> I somehow knew when I first started sending work out to journals that I needed to pitch my sites very low. So uh, nothing against the first journals that published my work. I am eternally grateful for those experiences and those publications, but I, I was not aiming particularly high. I was going for maybe one person operations with tiny readerships. And I remember getting, I don't know, maybe like three or four things published in maybe the first year or six months or a year that I was sending things out. And I remember winning a little prize, like a tiny, you know, best poem of the week prize. And I thought I was bloody brilliant. I was like, this is the best. It is only up and to the right from here. I can't believe how great this is. I am just as talented as everyone has always told me because when I was growing up, everyone knew that I was this kind of dreamy kid that wrote um, weird stuff in her journal and like short stories and things. And I was constantly being told, you know, oh, you're a writer, you're a writer. And so for years, I just kind of fed off that feedback and never actually wrote anything because I was like, yeah, people tell me I'm a writer, so I must be pretty great. And so going from that to realizing I had to actually write something and then sending this stuff out and getting these early acceptances, I thought I was pretty great. And then I started aiming higher. And once I uh, ended up going for more like national journals, it was three years before anything so much as got a sniff from an editor. Um, so yeah, I had to get really comfortable really quickly with rejection. And um, yeah, that first kind of run was good and bad because I think it showed me, you know, I'm not I'm not entirely crazy to want to do this, but then also I probably had moments where I thought, well, that's as high as I can go. You know, these, these other journals, they're just never going to accept my work. And I became very focused on numbers during this period. And I think, I don't think I'm alone in this. I kept a lot of lists um, and tallies, and I had a lot of like goals in terms of the number of poems I would send out per month. And I remember telling this to a friend of mine at one point who is not a writer. And she just looked at me like I was insane when I told her, you know, I try to send out three poems a month or whatever it was. 
she was just like, that's so many. And of course it is. It's a stupidly high number of poems to be sending out. Um, at least it was for me at the time. But I got this idea into my head that it was a matter of volume. It's a matter of like, just keep knocking on doors with poems and eventually someone will say yes. And, um, you know, that journals did start to say yes eventually, but that really had nothing to do with the volume of work that I was sending out. It had to do with the fact that I actually started reading work and my work got better as a result of that, I think. Um, and probably just as a result of, you know, the sheer amount of work that I was writing. Um, and of course, when a poem came back, it was rejected, I would leave it for a while and then I would revisit it. And so probably make it stronger in the, in the next draft. But I mean, what a terrible approach to take to be so focused on the numbers because it wasn't about trying to contribute to the journals that I was sending work out to. It was about trying to get my name into their pages and my bio in the back and just to be part of that group of people. You know, it was entirely about me and my success. <laughs> I was not really interested in contributing to the literary landscape at this point and I wasn't really interested in what the other people in the journal were publishing. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of people say that the people who, who publish in journals don't read them. And that was definitely true of me at the time. Um, I'm looking, as I'm saying this with quite a bit of shame at the pile of journals that I have on my desk there, but that is another issue. So yeah, the low point of this period of sending things out and focusing on volume was sending a poem to a very well-known, incredibly highly respected editor of um, a publication that had a national reach. And I don't know why I thought I was in with a chance, but I really did. The one thing I will say is that I always thought I had at least some chance when I was sending stuff out. I never sent things out thinking, oh, they'll definitely reject me. I always thought they'll probably reject me, but what if they don't? It will be so great if they don't. So yeah, I sent this poem out and got a response, I think within a day from this editor, which was, thank you very much for the poem, but I will not be using it. And I was just excited to see this person's name in my inbox and, um, you know, like a little bit stung that it got rejected, but not entirely surprised. And then I realized I hadn't even attached anything to the first email. I'd sent a blank email to this editor saying, here's my poem. There was no poem. And then they had rejected this lack of poem. And I was just like, oh, wow. Okay. This is so embarrassing on so many levels. And it just kind of brought home to me, like, I'm not even really paying that much attention to what I'm doing here. It's a total scattergun approach. It's, you know, there's so little thought behind it that I can't even be, can't even remember to attach the poem. And yeah, it was a, it was a sobering moment that I don't know that it really slowed me down. I think the only thing that 
really stopped me from being so obsessive about sending stuff out was realizing that I had to keep some stuff for myself if I was ever going to put a manuscript together. And luckily by that stage, I think I'd been working at it for about seven years, had built up a relatively respectful collection of publications to my name. And again, I was getting better at actually doing the reading and doing the work and figuring out what was out there and where I perhaps fit in. But even as I was working on my manuscript, I think I was still sending out too much. I think I was still sending out poems before they were ready and still getting plenty of rejections. But by this stage, I think I probably would have sent out, I don't know, it could have been, it could be in the hundreds, maybe over 150 poems over those years. And, you know, only say 10% of those would have been accepted for publication. So rejection was pretty, I was pretty numb to it, really. In, in the early days, a rejection would probably cost me at least a couple of days, maybe a week in licking my wounds, you know, talking over with my partner and my friends and just feeling really sad and, and then having to get back on the horse. But as years went on, I just, it just became so much easier to just let that wash over me and, and just move on. But I think that numbness led to a lack of reflection as well. Something that I did, and I wonder if this is common practice with other people as well, is if a poem would come back and I would immediately send it out to somewhere else because I just wanted work to be out there with someone else with the possibility of publication. None of these strategies are things I am saying are good ideas for the record, if you can't tell. Yeah, the poems that got stronger were the ones that I held on to when they came back and looked out with fresh eyes, you know, three months, six months later. But yeah, I was pretty numb to rejection by this stage, except when I wasn't. And I wasn't when there was a particular, maybe issue of a journal with a theme that I was really excited about, or um, maybe a, a competition that was, was really interesting to me. And, you know, I put in heaps and heaps of work and send something in and, and then get rejected. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess the thing that I want to underscore here is that it, it did still hurt many years in and it does still hurt, but it's entirely survivable. I think the, the thing that keeps people from sending their work out in the first place and, you know, people like my grandmother all those years ago is this idea that being rejected, maybe it would stop you from writing or maybe tarnish your relationship with poetry as a whole. And I think if you if you love it in any kind of genuine way, then that's just not possible. You know, you you might spend even a couple of months just not doing any work, but you'll re- you'll read something and you'll remember why it is you're you're trying to do it. I mean, that might not be true for everyone, and there may well be people who have been rejected and then stopped writing altogether. Yeah, definitely not ruling that out as a, as a possibility. <laughs> but yeah, in my case, I found that it, it really didn't slow me down all that much. And, it, and the experience of it was never worse than not sending anything out at all. 
I really honestly started to see rejections as a sign of, you know, at least I'm doing the work. And in those cases where work came back to me and I was able to sit with it for a while and, and reflect on it and see where its strengths and weaknesses were, it was so much more rewarding when that version got an editor's, editor's attention and was included. That always felt like, yeah, just, just so much more satisfying. There were those poems, and I, I still have these poems, that just never made it over the line. And I, you know, have worked on them and reworked them and, and tried to communicate what it is I wanted to say. And they're just never going to get published. And I, I kind of love those because there's something about just having so much faith in an idea it's to every editor's credit that they protect writers from just having you know their their favorite poem that they've ever written published even if it's no good you know like I'm so glad that this stuff isn't out there it doesn't mean that I'm not still really attached to it and it probably is that attachment that stops me from from doing the right kind of editing that would that would get it out there but yeah it's just it's a strange thing where you just write a poem and it's exactly how you want it to be and expresses exactly what you want to say and uh, nobody wants to hear it <laughs> but that's fine I think that's really fine and again um, in all this in what I'm saying there is so much love and admiration for the people who do the work of reading you know 700 submissions a thousand submissions like the conversations i've had with people who do edit journals those are the numbers that they tend to quote for an issue like it's it's in many hundreds or upwards of a thousand poems that they'll get and a lot of them from people who who haven't really looked too deeply into the journal which must be just really annoying you know, to put it lightly. So turning to the role of um, the editor, I wanted to share with you a really funny example of how how not to deal with rejection. So in, in all these cases, I guess one thing I haven't mentioned is, is whether I ever responded to an, a rejection email. And I never did, never crossed my mind to ever... Um, say anything beyond maybe if I had a personal rejection from someone um, had their actual email address then I might write back and say thank you so much for considering it you know that's as, as far as it would go because a I have a total maybe blind faith in the editor's call and also I just don't see the benefit in engaging in any other way like in saying well you know this piece is really good and I can't believe you can't see that and that kind of thing. But I know that those conversations do happen. You know, I've heard things to suggest that that is a conversation that a lot of editors have to have at times with, with poets who are really disappointed. So I guess it's the opposite of what my, my grandmother did, which was never send anything out at all because I'm too scared of rejection. At the other end of the scale, you've got people who, when they are rejected, go, well, you're wrong. You're wrong to have done this. And yeah, I wanted to share this example with you. Probably not the, the most graceful way to respond to rejection. 
So um, my partner got me some old back issues of Poetry Magazine and I've got one here. This is the May 2005 issue. So in the back of the magazine, they have letters to the editor and they have the editors responding to some of those letters. And it's a really fun and gossipy section of the magazine. So to set it up, I want to read first this letter from a reader called Belle Randall from Seattle, Washington. And Belle writes, Dear Editor, As I remember, the editor who founded Poetry Magazine, Harriet Munro, and poets like Elliot and Pound, who sometimes served as guest editors, prided themselves on having a narrowly defined aesthetic and on being, in this sense, exclusive. Nowadays, it's just the opposite, of course. The magazine is determinedly inclusive, or so it seems from reading the comment section. The idea seems to be to include every point of view and to elevate none, resulting in a veritable Tower of Babel with everyone speaking a different language, all full of passionate intensity and no one to reconcile them. It depresses me every month. Perhaps being given a lot of money and the responsibility it implies has made the editors feel an obligation to become more inclusive. But I'd ask them to remember that the magazine to which the money was given was valued for its adherence to an aesthetic, a perennial, centralized, but na relatively narrow one. It's time to stop apologizing for having an identity. So that's Belle Randall. And as will become clear, this issue of the money that Poetry Magazine had at this time was, yeah, was attracting a little bit of criticism. So the editors responded to Belle and they say, because of space limitations, we have had to edit Belle Randall's excellent letter, which balanced her critique of the back half of the magazine with praise for the poems. We're grateful for both, the criticism and the praise. In point of fact, though, poetry has always prided itself on being inclusive. Harriet Munro herself set the tone for the magazine with her open-door policy, which appeared in the second issue. Besides making clear that the only standard for the poems would be excellence, and much of what she published was not at all modern, she explicitly stated that the back half of the magazine would not be confined to one set of editorial opinions. Indeed, she encouraged and often contributed to an atmosphere of intel intelligent and mostly well-mannered clamour. She thought it a sign of literary health and vigour, as do we. So that's that little exchange. And next is a series of letters from a poet who you may know, you may not know, um, who was rejected from Poetry Magazine. And they write, Dear Editor, the blank form rejection was a nice but predictable touch coming from vengeful, petty, reactionary and aesthetically moribund freaks like yourselves. Enjoy your money. That's the first one. The second one says, Dear Editor, you must realise, of course, that no genuinely literate person no person who actually knows anything about contemporary poetry and the clarity that is coming back to, into it now after a couple of decades of neo-formalist gibberish and doggerel would ever have picked poetry to shower all that dough on. Your receiving it is more or less proof of the irrelevance you have been enjoying since the 70s. That's number two. Number three, dear editor, and don't imagine I am unaware of what you intended to do. You'll publish my first email, but not the second one. I consider them one and the same note, but you will edit to make me look bad. 
and that will just hurt me so much. I can't tell you. I am sure I will cry for a week. And the final one, dear editor, I had a brief interest in poetry, but won't be dumb enough to make that mistake again. I think you're fools. And the writer of all those letters was Franz Wright. And the editors respond to Franz. They say, this string of letters might seem to prove Bell Randall's point. We include them here for three reasons. First, we thought it might be interesting and worthwhile for our readers to get a behind the scenes look at the editorial process and the occasional fallout from that. Second, the letters underscore the point that just as in Harriet Munro's day, poetry treats all manuscripts equally, including those from Pulitzer Prize winners. And finally, well, we just couldn't resist. It's okay though, because Poetry Magazine and Franz Wright did make up in the end. Um, I found here on uh, Franz Wright's entry in Wikipedia that a poem that he wrote uh, in his 2011 collection, so six years after that exchange took place, a love poem to his wife that he wrote when he was very ill, won Poetry Magazine's premier annual literary prize for best work published in that year. So who knows, maybe there were further letters than were published in the May 2005 issue from Franz apologising for uh, not taking rejection so well on that occasion. So yeah, I hope if you are a new writer in particular, somebody who's just starting to think about sending work out, that me talking about my own approach to publication and rejection demystifies it a little bit for you. There are a million ways to approach it, as many ways as there are people writing poetry. But yeah, what I would say is that rejection is absolutely nothing to be afraid of. And it really does just mean that you are having a go. You're in the game. 